Excuse me, sir, but would you mind stepping away from the entrance to this bookstore? Uh, hell no. I heard in my favorite podcast, Shut Up and Listen with Griff Manley, that there will be an author here who wrote a book claiming the Republicans stole an election. Well, that would be me, Dr. Dabney Nair, noted historian and, as I say in my latest book, Rutherford B. Hayes, An American Life. It's well documented that the Republican Party conspired to manipulate the Electoral College totals in the election of 1876. Fake history. Republicans would never do that. Hmm. Not to point out the obvious, but since 1876, there have been four presidents who lost the popular vote, but won the electoral vote. And they've all been Republicans. Exactly. We never steal elections. We let the Constitution do it for us. Tell you what, if you let me inside, I'll give you a free, signed first edition of my book, Rutherford B. Hayes, An American Life. Here, you can look through it. Wow. Man, how did you do this? What, write such a fascinating biography of such an unremarkable subject? No, download a whole book to paper. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today's episode President 19, Rutherford B. Hayes. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it. And we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode and bring your friends so they can too. Before we go on, welcome back to DB Comedy. I'm Joe. Let's have our DB Comedy Writers of Wrongs call out. Introduce themselves by voice. I'm Paul, also I'm a WoW, otherwise known as a Writer of Wrongs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Sandy. I'm Tommy. And I'm Patrick. All right. And uh, we are joined, we will be joined momentarily by uh, Jelsey Denode. We are also brought in by one of our uh, other in-house historians, uh, James McRae of the Michigan McRae's. Say hi again so they know your voice. Uh, happy to be here. Um, James McRae, uh, uh, social studies teacher, Saranac Community Schools. Happy to be yeah. joining you guys. Thank you. And returning one more time, I feel like we're getting a bonus out of you. Thank you so much to uh, Dr. Matthew Norman of the University of Cincinnati at Blue Ash. I think I got that right. Yeah, Blue Ash College. All right. Thank you. It's good to be back. All right. Well, thank you. Because we, as I said, when we originally reached out to you, uh, we were looking at the Civil War and some of the Civil War presidents, and we kind of thought we were done after chatting with you about Ulysses S. Grant. But as I was sending you thanks, you actually emailed me back and said, I would like to come back to talk about what whom you referred to as Brother Fraud B. Hayes, 
otherwise known in your textbooks as Rutherford B. Hayes. So that might be a good, uh, so aside from just us being, you know, lovable Motley crew that we are, why? Why Hayes? Yeah. yeah. Was, well, that, was that his campaign slogan? Why Hayes? <laughs> why not Hayes? <laughs> Well, I'm, you know, I'm interested in the history of Reconstruction and Hayes. Hayes is a central president in the, the story of Reconstruction because of the circumstances related to his election and also the policies that he adopts as president regarding the South. Well, a lot of important things happen under Hayes. And he's one of these, you know, we get into what's now kind of called the Gilded Age. And a lot of these Gilded Age presidents sort of get lost. Sometimes it's called the bearded age. You know, they, <laughs> and you have this, this emerging industrial giant that the United States is becoming. And uh, capitalists become more famous, more widely recognizable than a lot of the politicians of the era. But, but I'm interested in Hayes. I've done some research at the Hayes Presidential Center in Fremont, Ohio. So I, I know it well. I shredded my transmission while moving to Chicago in Fremont. Yes. Chelsea, when you were getting your degree, what did they teach you as you learned about 20th century um, environmental policy and urban policy? What did they teach you about Rutherford B. Hayes? You know, um, we get the the, the standard um you know, I had to take a 19th century um, America class, just one. You know, they teach us the, uh, uh, oh gosh, why can't I think of the word? Dr. Norm, help me out. The something <laughs> of 1877. Well, it's sometimes called the compromise. Of Thank you. <laughs> but I don't think there was a compromise. Mm. But. I promise I have that- a PhD too. <laughs> <laughs> so are you talking more about the the election the election yeah. the exactly. fraud part yeah yeah that's exactly like yeah Congrats, now, Ruthie Ohio. B was born to an already widowed mother and he was a sickly child and he was doted upon so do you think he seems from my perceptions, and maybe you, you've you've read his, maybe you've read more of his diary than you know I have, or as the other historians I've read have. He seems to have an extremely healthy self-regard. Nothing he ever did, he seemed to think about twice. <laughs> so you know, he was a good student. He became he started that Kenyon College, which for all I know is the greatest college in America. And well, that is then, a totally Ohio right? thing, right, Sandy? <laughs> <laughs> Not a yes. That, <laughs> yeah, that strikes me as being correct. The <laughs> Ohio State University, you people. That's right. We are not a Ohio State. It is the, the Ohio, Ohio State. State. So uh, he strikes me as an essentially unreflective personality. Hmm. Unreflective. I don't know if I'd call him unreflective. I, I think he was someone who, by our, by our terms today, would be called a moderate. Okay. And, and I am not really into the 
the psychobiography approach, but I was thinking about this, that yes, he, he grew up without a father. His father died before he was born. He was very attached to his older sister and to his mother. And, you know, one of the, one of the hallmarks I think of his presidency is his, his effort to, to try and please people. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was a product of his childhood. Hmm. And like a lot of people who try to please everyone, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, for at least the first couple of years of his presidency, he pleased absolutely no one. That's right. And, and I think that's one of the lessons is that in trying to please everyone, you please virtually no one. Now, I also notice if he is, 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 is this the final president that was at some point in his life a Whig? Hmm. He was a Whig, and had, and I know you're all huge fans of the Whigs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Clay. Of course, yeah. I made a point of looking this up, and and his was not only not only was he a Whig, he met Henry Clay. <gasps> so, Whoa, <laughs> lucky guy. Delcy wants his autograph now. <laughs> I want Henry Clay's autograph. <laughs> I can't wait until we do our perennial loser episode featuring <laughs> Henry Clay. Oh. Just wait, y'all. It would be interesting to play like six degrees of separation from Henry Clay right? and see if every person who's currently in government is six or less steps away from Henry Clay. I think it could be three degrees in the 19th century. The 19th century. Great yeah. game. Wow. Was there ever su- a, such an unsuccessful party electorally that actually had such influence for as long as they had it than the Whigs? The Communist Party? <laughs> hey man, they won Milwaukee a couple of times. <laughs> the Whigs actually elected presidents. They just had this bad habit of dying in office. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> I think that most historians today would would say that it was uh, what, what Eric Foner called an unfinished revolution. That you see a, a lot of progress, but the, the tragic part is that it was abandoned. But, but under Grant, you have, for an all too brief period of time, a functioning multiracial democracy in the South. But the key is that you needed federal force to, to back it up. And because of the I mean, there are a variety of factors, but there was an economic depression that started early in Grant's second term, and that heightened the this desire on the part of a growing number of, of white Americans, not only in the South, but in the North, to end Reconstruction. You know, the, the Civil War has been over now for years. Why are we still doing this? Let's allow the South to rule itself. And by by the time we get to the end of Grant's presidency, Grant had come to the conclusion that the continued use of military force needed to be changed, that, that there, was, there needed to be a new policy. And the other thing was that Republicans believed that this continued use of military force was hurting them in elections. And Hayes, before he was president, was governor of Ohio. And Grant delayed sending troops to Mississippi because he thought that it would hurt Hayes's chances of winning the gubernatorial election in Ohio in 1875. 
And I think that's a really good evidence of just how much of a losing issue Republicans thought that this was. But Republicans, and I think this is a, an important theme for Hayes' presidency, Republicans were divided on a lot of issues. There were still hardcore Republicans that, who called themselves stalwarts who wanted to continue the use of military force and have a firm reconstruction policy. And there were other Republicans who thought that, that this was a losing issue and we needed to try something else. And Hayes had come to the conclusion, even before he knew that he had been officially elected president, that a new policy needed to be tried. That maybe if we withdraw troops, this will create a groundswell of goodwill on the part of white Southerners and that the Republican Party in the South will become bigger and not just African-Americans and a few other uh, white people who supported the Republicans, but maybe a lot of old former Whigs. <laughs> well, <laughs> Very well, but, old former Whigs by that yeah. point. Yeah, there's still some former Whigs around. And, and Hayes was one of these people who thought that a conciliatory policy towards the South would create goodwill and, and actually help the Republican Party in the South. And, you, I'm sorry. Okay, go, go ahead. Did he run on that in, in, in 1876? Well, his, his letter of acceptance, because this is still in an era when, when presidential candidates did not campaign for themselves. So what they did is when they, when they received the nomination, they wrote an official letter of acceptance. And this was seen as the closest thing to a campaign, campaign speech. And when you look at Hayes's acceptance letter, he talks about peace, and he, but he also talks about justice. Uh, and this is the thing about Hayes. Hayes, I think, was very much committed to civil rights for African-Americans. And he had a strong record on this. Tried to enfranchise black voters in Ohio, did he not? He supported that. He supported the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. He briefly served in Congress during the Johnson administration. And in Congress, he voted pretty much along what we would call the radical Republican line for a very strong reconstruction policy. Mm. So he had all of these qualifications. And he was also, of course, a Civil War veteran. Mm -hmm. And the Civil War was never far from his mind. And he was very concerned about upholding the legacy of the Civil War and, and making sure that this hard fought victory was not squandered. So he was committed to, to equal rights, but he thought that perhaps the best way to ensure that was by removing the last remaining federal troops from the South that were protecting the Republican governments in South Carolina and Louisiana. Samuel Tilden, it was kind of strange Democratic candidate because he was kind of a strange guy, let's be honest, because he wasn't, say, an abolitionist, but he was a freedom Democrat or whatever the term was, was he not? Yeah, and he was also, which and I think this made him even more unusual, he was a, a proponent of reform. Yes. He gone after the, the big uh, Tammany Hall political machine in, in New York City. So he was, yeah, he was an intriguing candidate for the Democrats. And he did not embrace, he purposely ignored, he did not embrace or excuse Southern violence against the freedmen. He tried to distance himself from it. 
Well, I think he was involved in managing Horatio Seymour's campaign, who Seymour ran against Grant in 1868. And if you look at that campaign that the Democrats ran, that was one of the most overtly racist campaigns in American history, because it was very critical. They, They zoomed in on Grant's reconstruction policies and how it was horrible that President Grant was standing up for equal rights in the South. But yeah, Tilden is an intriguing candidate and he actually ended up getting a majority of the popular vote in 1876. Hayes went to bed on election night in 1876 thinking that he had lost. But from what I was told, a Republican operative in Washington, D.C., or maybe it was in New York City, contacted the Republican Republican leaders in, you know, the states under dispute, like Louisiana and uh, South Carolina, and said, hold on, do not tell your returning boards to seat the Democratic electors just yet. We here at the New York Times, I think his last name was Reed, we think that, we think that there's still a chance that, uh, that Hayes might become president. I mean, we live in an era of naked partisanship in the media, and we're all shocked, shocked that it happens. But um, the deliberate interference by the New York Times and the Republican press in the, uh, in the 1876 election, that wasn't especially brazen by the uh, standards of the time, was it? Or by the standards of other elections that the uh, <laughs> media is, has just kind of intervened in. This is Florida 2000 all over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I guess the other way around. But you see yeah. No, the, uh, I mean, the expectation for much of our history was that uh, the media, newspapers, had a political affiliation. You, you had Republican newspapers and you had Democrat newspapers. And this, by the way, also tied into the patronage system. That re- Republican newspaper editors, if, you know, if they were supporting Hayes in 1876 and Hayes wins, then they expect goodies. They expect rewards for helping get Hayes elected and the government could put advertisements in newspapers and, and other things, or the newspaper editor might get appointed postmaster in his town. So this idea of an unbiased media is a very new idea in the United States. For much of our history, the media was affiliated you know, with one political party or cause or another. for Wednesday, November 8th, 1876. Election day is over and the presidency is up for grabs. Get the story here in the Metropolitan Democratic Chronicle. You read it here first. Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden in historically close election. The exclusive story this morning in the November 8th, 1876 edition of the Republican Metropolitan Tribune. (laughs) Politics. Read all about it here. We have the story right here. I find politics distasteful. Extra, extra, extra. Tilden to bring American greatness on its centennial when he is declared the winner. Read all about it in the Metropolitan Democratic Chronicle. 
Hayes vows an end to reconstruction and a return to prosperity when he enters the White House. And the Republican Metropolitan Tribune will tell you everything you need to know. Hmm. You gotta be in the know. My husband would not approve. Your husband would appreciate your knowledge of the political scene. You've never met my husband. X. 3x3, Tilden plans to end corruption, and America agrees. Read how in the Metropolitan Democratic Chronicle. Hooray for Tilden. And read here <laughs> first about how Hayes' campaign emerged victorious. No, Hayes won. Well, I'm just getting the Metropolitan paper today. No, thanks, thanks lady. lady. No, the Democratic Metropolitan. <laughs> thanks, lady. Yeah, read here first about how Tilden plans to restart the Civil War! What? What? Uh, the truth about Tilden's plans are here, in the Republican Metropolitan Tribune! That's awful, let me see. But hey, Hayes wants to take your homes away! He does? <laughs> My family lost our homes under the Republicans. That's why I'm selling papers instead of being at school. It's awful. Your family owns that big house on the hill. <laughs> That's why Samuel Tilden's plan will keep my family in our house and me in school. And all of it is right here in the Metropolitan Democratic Chronicle. Why, you lying You're guy. You're be rude, young man. Uh, Samuel Tilden will let the Irish run this country. So? You want to eat potatoes and cabbage and a flatulence all your life? <laughs> I see your point. Let me get a copy of the Republican Metropolitan. Get the Rutherford B. Hayes kills squirrels for his facial hair. What? <laughs> Come on, no human can grow that beard. That's ridiculous. And he eats them raw first. You take that back. You know yeah. that, both of you. My goodness, if the politics of this country gets young boys riled up with crazy stories and outlandish lies. The Republican Metropolitan Tribune does not sell lies. <laughs> you don't think so? The truth is right here in the Metropolitan Democratic Chronicle. <laughs> Just to end this, I will buy one of both of your newspapers. Good day. <laughs> Thanks, lady. Thanks, lady? <laughs> Good plan, Tommy. <laughs> she bought one of each. If we sell a hundred copies, we each get a nickel. If we keep it up, we'll be rich, Jimmy. Yeah, but that stuff about the Irish criminy. Hayes eating a squirrel? Well, how do you think he got that goofy beard? <laughs> Good clean living? <laughs> uh, ready to sell some more? Okay, we ain't doing this for no presidents. Except for the ones on the greenbacks. Ready? <laughs> Go! Read all about the presidential election right here. So how? So you again? You mentioned Rutherford B. Hayes. We have this is what the second presidential election where the winner of the popular vote did not take the presidency. There was there was clearly rampant shenanigans in many different states. How how did Tilden become president? I mean, how did Hayes become president? How did the deal get cut? I caught myself. <laughs> well, the Republicans were in control of the canvassing boards in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. And, and that meant that they were ultimately responsible for counting the votes and certifying the winner. 
in their states. And you had a situation where Democrats and Republicans both claimed to have won the elections in those states. And you had a Republican administration, and then you also had a Democratic administration. And both parties sent electoral votes to Washington, D.C. But it was the Republican, because since both Louisiana and South Carolina had Republican um, governors, that they signed the Republican electors, or whatever the official form was, that was the one that bore the government, the, the governor's seal, and supposedly the state's imprimatur. I've never known how to pronounce that. Well, if you were a Democrat in Florida, Louisiana, or South Carolina, you would say that the Democrats legitimately won. Mm-hmm. The, the, not only the presidential election, but the state election, and therefore the, Democrat, you know, the Democrats have control of the legislature and they, they have a Democratic governor. And so you have then separate results being sent to Washington that conflict with each other. Which ballots are legitimate? Are they the Republican ballots or are they the Democratic ballots? And if you asked Hayes, he would say, well, according to the 12th Amendment, the vice president or the, the president of the Senate counts the, counts the votes. And, the, and Grant's vice president actually died. So it was the president pro tem who was a Republican. The, the Republicans controlled the Senate. The Democrats controlled the House. And as far as Hayes was concerned, this, this really wasn't an issue. The Republican president pro tem would certify the ballots from, sent by Republicans from those contested states. And this was never an issue again. Yeah, never, never an issue again. <laughs> well, who decides? The winner. Well, <laughs> Congress decided to reach something of a compromise and appoint a commission that would review the results and make determinations about Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, and also there was a contested elector from Oregon. And however this commission decided would determine the result of the election, Tilden just needed one more electoral vote to have a majority. And Hayes needed all 20 to defeat Tilden, or yes, Tilden. That's, That's how close this was. And the Republicans controlled the Senate and there were five members of the commission from the Senate, three Republicans, two Democrats. The Democrats controlled the House, five members of the commission from the House, three Democrats, two Republicans. Then there were also five members from the U.S. Supreme Court. And initially it was going to be two Democrats, two Republicans, and then an independent. A wig. No. Uh, well, it was David Davis, who was an old friend of Abraham Lincoln. Ah. And he was seen as, as the independent. And essentially what this would boil down to is David Davis determining the result of the 1876 presidential election. But in the meantime, the Illinois legislature elected David Davis to the U.S. Senate. And David Davis then resigned from the U.S. Supreme Court. (laughs) 
<laughs> and this made a vacancy then on the Electoral Commission. There were only two Democrats on the U.S. Supreme Court, which meant that that vacancy was filled by a Republican. And surprise, surprise, when the commission voted on who would get the electoral votes from these four states that were in dispute, they were all eight to seven votes in favor of Hayes. <laughs> so suddenly Hayes didn't mind that everybody didn't like him. Just enough people liked him. Yes. Justice who was seated in Davis's place Weren't there some like midnight visits to his home before he made the final determination? No, I, I don't know about a midnight visit to his home. Now there was one of the members of the commission who was ill and, and they actually met at his house to vote. On February 7th, Justice Bradley, who had replaced David Davis on the commission, ruled that the United States government did not have the jurisdiction to, you know, go behind the governor, as it was called, and question the voters of the returning board or the electoral board of Florida. And therefore, he awarded Florida's votes to Hayes. The New York Sun later claims that during the whole of that night, Judge Bradley's house in Washington was surrounded by the carriages of visitors who came to see him, apparently about the decision of the Electoral Commission, in all, including leading Republicans and persons deeply interested in the Texas Pacific Railroad scheme. Uh, railroad corruption is never far from public life in any part. So according to the two of the, one of them was a Freelingheisen from New Jersey, whom I assume was the son of Henry Clay's 1844 running mate. There goes Henry Clay again. <laughs> degrees of Henry Clay. <laughs> and so that's those are the spectral, the mysterious visits to Bradley. Somehow a railroad man and Henry Clay, the son of Henry Clay's old running mate, twisted... Justice Bradley's arms into throwing the election to Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, you should know that the New York Sun was an intensely partisan Democratic newspaper. Well, yeah. <laughs> when Hayes becomes president, he wants to institute this new Southern policy that's called the New Departure. And he sends a delegation to Louisiana and he meets with the Republican governor of South Carolina and also the would-be Democratic governor of South Carolina, whose name is Wade Hampton, who had been a general in the rebel army. And these Democrats in the South assure Hayes that if he withdraws the last remaining troops that are protecting the Republican regimes in Louisiana and South Carolina, that all will be fine and that the rights of African-Americans will be respected. And Hayes goes along with this. And even Frederick Douglass, whom Hayes appointed as the marshal for Washington, D.C., initially said, yeah, this is worth trying. We should, this is not a bad idea. But as soon as we get to the midterm elections in 1878, there's rampant violence and intimidation and fraud in the South. 
And it's clear that this new departure policy has failed. Uh, to cement this policy, Hayes toured the South in 1877 and actually appeared with Wade Hampton. But his emphasis is on reunion. He would like to have reunion, and he would also like to have the new amendments to the Constitution enforced. And, and he thinks he can do that by not having troops in the South anymore. And, of course, he's proven to be wrong. Good day, my fellow citizens. Since my election, Lucy and I have traveled all over this great country. And we can say, without fear of equivocation, that the best lemonade in America can be found right here in Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> my goodness, who would have thought that a Republican president would receive such a heartfelt welcome in a southern city? Why, even 10 years ago, it seems like the scars of the war between the states... Uh, beg pardon, I understand that down here, that tragic conflagration is called the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> well, every state has the right to its own version of history. Anyway, some thought the wounds of division would never heal. But as your president, I have applied a magic salve, and that is called trust. When I took office, some of the more radical elements in my party were certain that the presence of federal troops was necessary throughout Dixie to ensure free and fair elections here in the South. To which I said, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution are now the laws of this land, and our Southern brethren are patriotic citizens who are unflaggingly loyal to the Constitution as it is written. Now, it is true that naysayers dispute my victory in the presidential election of 1876, because violent suppression of the black vote rendered impossible an accurate ballot count in Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. Which I say, put yourself in the pale skin of a white southern gentleman. How long can you keep your foot on a man's throat before he spits up on your boots? <laughs> Treat them better and they'll act better. They've learned their lesson. And time has proved the wisdom of that sentiment. Since my administration ended Reconstruction, a new South, dedicated to prosperity and fairness, has arisen from the old you, my southern friends, have proven that black and white, former slave and former master, can live together in separate but equal harmony. I ask the handful of Negroes I see in the audience, have any of the white Alabamans who surround you attempted to interfere with your right to vote? Ah, your silence speaks volumes. <laughs> and I firmly believe that someday soon... The South will be as congenial to Republicans as it is to Negroes. I understand the transition to full and representative two-party rule will not be easy. I see some of your fellows have attempted to shield themselves from your Democratic neighbors' criticisms by donning white hoods. Well, you shan't need to hide for long. Someday, the Republican Party will be as dear and familiar to Southern voters as members of their own clan. And that is a truth as certain as the divinity of Christ, who died for our sins on a cross like the one I see burning in yonder field. <laughs> I thank you for such a humbling tribute, and hope I shall remain worthy of it. God bless the South, and God bless America.
but just when you think about his his sub his, his what he called his new departure his policy towards the south it was very conciliatory and he was reaching out to white southerners in the hopes that this would lead to a bigger republican party in the south and of course he was completely wrong <laughs> he completely misread white southerners and that's one of the reasons why he gets a really bad press, bad press from, from many scholars is because of this policy, which was a failure. But I think that if you dig down a little bit deeper, it was very well intentioned. It just didn't work out the way he thought. One person I want to bring up for a reason we've known and a reason that sort of dawned on me as I was reviewing some notes is uh, Lucy, Mrs. Hayes, a.k.a. Lucy Lemonade, who um, I was sort of reading about her, rather distinguished, uh, first first college graduate, first lady, a member. And the thing that struck me is a member of the Temperance Union. Now, I know we have sort of the jokes about Lucy Lemonade. She was the first to not serve alcohol. But noticing that, it suddenly struck me, wow, that's talk about trends like that's the first seed of 50 years of influence of temperance and moderation, which leads, which ultimately leads to prohibition. Mm-hmm. Quite a, quite a legacy. Well, and they weren't necessarily prohibitionists, but they were in favor of temperance. What's and, the difference? Well, temperance, temperance. moderation. Are uh, the, uh, they is in the, the hazes or the temperance right. union? The haze. <laughs> Uh, and Hayes himself, uh, you know, it irked him, I guess, that because this was somewhat controversial, that they weren't serving alcohol at these White House functions. And it bothered him that the press was suggesting that it was because he was a cheapskate. <laughs> he made it clear, you know, we're, we're spent, we spent more money because they did like to entertain. And you can read these accounts of these really nice affairs that, that the Hayes family put on at the best lemons you can buy in America. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They, so he said, you know, I spent more money than any other president entertaining people. It wasn't because I was cheap. It was because he didn't like the way people behave when they were inebriated. He didn't like to be around. That. He didn't like to see that. Uh, well, not because he had eight kids. Well, yeah, they had a lot of kids. <laughs> and like five of them survived to adulthood, which really wasn't bad by the standards of the time. Yeah. <laughs> here, I, I think it's right about here. This is where the ghost appears. Yeah. Yes. Let's let's do this. Okay. <laughs> You're the Ghostbuster. Don't you have to like summon the spirits or whatever? I need all of our energy. We all need to hold hands around this candle. <laughs> okay, 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 chill, chill, chill out, chill out. Nothing will happen if you're fucking around like this. <clears throat> okay. Alright, uh, close your eyes. Spirit from the other world. Spirit who walks these Harvard halls. Spirit of sanctity. Spirit of grace. 
Let us hear about your case. Fuck me running. What the hell is that? Wait, who's there? Oh, speak to us, oh emissary from the other world. I am the widow of a president. President of the law review? No, of the United States. It's the first lady. Although so little is known about him, you would think that he had only been president of the Harvard Law Review. Only? Do you know what I would give to be president of the Harvard Law Review? Tell us more, O spirit of the first lady. Oh, you are so smart, Mr. Harvard Law. You figure it out. I am new for a certain term to walk the earth until this misconceptions of my husband's presidency are burnt and purged away. Oh my God, it's Barbara Bush. Uh, no, though I do well amongst the thousand points of light. My poor husband was the first of his kind to hold elected office. Holy shit. Michelle Obama? <laughs> I, I love Michelle Obama. And so you would all be pleased to learn of her death? What? Oh. oh. No. I love you, man. So great with her arms. Yeah. <laughs> She's alive. <sighs> My husband was given the ignominious title, His Fraudulency. Pat Nixon? Hardly. One of my husband's most memorable statements as president was, it is the desire of the good people of the whole country that sectionalism as a factor in our politics should disappear. That sounds like something Lincoln would say. Wait, are you? Oh, please. The only thing I have in common with Mary Todd Lincoln is that I am also known by a tripartite name. My husband lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College. Melania? No. Oh, good. My husband would have won the popular vote, but for the scandal of the suppression of black voters in the South. Definitely not Melania. Oh, okay. My husband was the only president ever in our country's history to suffer the ignominy of winning his office via commission. Oh, wait. Did that happen with John Quincy Adams? He was the first person to become president without winning the popular vote. <laughs> and his name languishes in the dark abysm of time, does it? Additional clues only help if you keep track of the ones you've already been given. I was famous, <laughs> infamous really, for only serving lemonade at the White House. Never. Else. You're Lucy Lemonade! Er, Webb Hayes. 
Wait, your husband was Rutherford B. Burchard. Rutherford Burchard Hayes. With a name like that, he was destined for the presidency. How can we release you, Lucy? Avenge the foul and most unnatural murder of my husband's reputation. Oh, okay. Restore his name to prominence. Rescue him from relegation to neighborhood parks and the occasional street sign. We'll tell our law school friends that your husband wasn't a fraud, Lucy Hayes. He, he graduated Harvard Law too, you know. Tell your friends that President Hayes signed the legislation allowing women to argue before the Supreme Court. Mm. Remember here! So cool! Lucy Lemonade! Do not forget! Let's get out of here! Yeah, this is getting creepy. Also, I want lemonade now. But not Lucy Lemonade, am I right? <laughs> More like vodka lemonade! <laughs> ah. Let's drink to Rutherford B. With a Buckeye Blitz. Bourbon, grenadine, and lemonade named for his homeland in Ohio. To temperance. To temperance. You can talk about how Hayes is so much more beloved in Paraguay than he is in the United States. That's a low bar to clear. <laughs> I actually learned that from a student this past semester. I had not heard that story. And when I was talking in class, well, virtually, uh, virtual class about Hayes and his reconstruction policy, she said, you know, Hayes is huge in Paraguay. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, he, and I looked it up and sure enough, there was a, a dispute between it's like a David, uh, David Hasselhoff and is big in Germany kind of a situation. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Uh, there was this dispute between Paraguay and Argentina. And they, they left it up to the United States to mediate this dispute. And the United States found in favor of Paraguay. And this happened while Hayes was president. Although uh, I, I don't think Hayes himself really had much to do. I think it was more his State Department. His yeah, Everett's. Yeah. But he gets the credit. <laughs> and, and as a result... Hayes is extraordinarily popular in Paraguay. There's a soccer team named after him. There's a town named after him. There is a state named after him. Yes. There's a whole uh, yeah region of Paraguay that was part of this disputed territory named after him. Hmm. Uh, there are students in Paraguay who uh, the pinnacle of their study abroad, if they is Fremont, Ohio, to go to the Hayes Center. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really? so bad for them. Right. Uh, man. Well, it is down the street from Cedar Point, so sure. you can write something. <laughs> Was this around the same time as the, what is they they call it, like the Triangular War or whatever between, it was like Paraguay versus everyone and a third of Paraguay exactly. died? Paraguay versus <laughs> Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina. This was, was it, Chelsea? I was saying 90% of uh, Paraguay, Paraguayans, Paraguayans, that's right. People from Paraguay? No, uh, Paraguayan men were killed. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's it's not a war that we here in the United States hear a lot about, but in terms of 
uh, like percentage of a nation's population dying in war is one of the worst ever. Suddenly, Fremont, Ohio looks a whole lot better now, doesn't it? That does. Yeah, like that's, I'm also, that's losing a war real hard. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tripped up that we, the United States, played sort of world police or adjudicator and didn't like take some type of financial advantage of the situation. Have what we ever done that a second pa- time? What did they grow in Paraguay? That's my only question. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, now it's a big cattle ranch, the yeah. whole country. Way down upon the Swanee River. Mr. President, I need to speak to you. Ah, well, if it isn't my Secretary of State, Billy Boy Everts. You want some lemonade? No, thank you, sir. This matter is rather urgent. Urgent smurge it. Come on, Billy Boy. What's so important that you can't enjoy a glass of ice-cold lemonade fresh squeezed by the First Lady of these United States? A border crisis, for one thing. Crisis schmisis. What crisis could be more important than a good drink and a good talk with your good friend, Ruddy? Fine. I'll have a lemonade, and we'll talk about the dispute between Paraguay and Argentina. Argentina smudge, smart, whatever. Why do these fancy foreigners have to come bothering us with their problems? Sir... I'm sure I don't need to remind you that Argentina and Paraguay are South American nations. Um, heck no. Any fool knows that. Still doesn't explain why they have to ruin a nice afternoon. Sir, uh, I mean, uh, ready? Um, the Monroe Doctrine requires... Oh, great. More doctrines. That's all I hear about all day. States' rights doctrines, equal protection doctrines, all stuff and nonsense. If people could just stop worrying about their doggone doctrines, why, it'd be a better world. It will be a worse world if we don't prevent this war. Oh, let them fight that darn old war. Maybe they'll learn that war is silly. We fought a whole great big war over slavery, and did it change a doggone thing? It often seems that it hasn't. My point exactly. Anyway, I guess you won't let me enjoy this lemonade until you tell me what all that fuss is about. The dispute is over the Chaco region. Chaco. Chaco. Hmm. Sounds nice. I imagine there are great big snow-capped mountains. Pretty blue lakes full of carp. Actually, it's a low-lying arid river delta, commonly known as the Green Hell. So why are they fighting? To see who gets stuck with it? The, The Chaco is home to several hostile Indian tribes. Both countries want dominion for security reasons. Oh, those pesky redskins. Always up to no good. Well, what's the big deal? Don't Paraguay and Argentina have reservations? Yes, but they contacted you anyway. We need to choose based on our strategic interests. I'll debrief you. (laughs) You're cute, Billy, but I don't swing that way. Argentina, a growing industrial and maritime power that can offer us access to their domestic markets if we award them the Chaco. Paraguay, landlocked, poor, and belligerent, but if you give them the Chaco, they'll name it after you. Doesn't sound like much of a choice, Billy. I think you're right, Ruddy. You tell Paraguay that the Chaco is all theirs. Mr. Hayes, did you hear a word I just said? Of Course I did. Paraguay offered me a nice present, 
and it would be rude of me to turn them down. That is not a rational choice. Oh, rational smashinal. Too often we prize thought instead of thoughtfulness. Everyone would be better off if we just exchanged nice presents instead of killing each other. You tell me this, Billy. Why am I president of the United States? Because you promised Southern congressmen that you'd end Reconstruction in return for their support. Oh, mm. fine. I'll draft a telegram to Paraguay saying Rutherford B. Hayes awards them the Chaco. Messenger! Yes, sir? Take this to the White House Telegraph Office. Yes, sir. I tell you, Lucy's outdone herself with this latest batch of lemonade. Tastes just like an Ohio summer. Those must be undissolved bits of Toledo I'm tasting. <laughs> Telegram from Asuncion, Paraguay, sir. Dismissed. Yes, sir. Well, that took forever. Oh, don't be so hard on those Paraguayans. Or, or Paraguayites, or, or whatever they call themselves down there. They probably got caught up making plans for the state of Rutherford, the city of Rutherford, Ruddy Road, Ruddy College. What do they say? Permission requested to just name state Presidente Hayes. Stop. We forgot that your chief executive has such a silly name. Stop. Well, that's some fuckery. Fuckery, schmuckery. Uh, Hayes, hey, I think Hayes is really kind of a fascinating person because after his presidency, he only served one term like he promised, even though he, uh, he gained a lot of popularity through vetoes. When, when the Democrats control, they, they will eventually gain control of both houses of Congress during Hayes' administration. And one of the first things that they do is try to restrict the federal government's ability to enforce the election laws. And they do it in a, they try to do it in a very clever way by attaching what were called riders or amendments to important appropriations measures, thinking that there's no way Hayes would veto these bills and risk not funding vital elements of the US government. But Hayes did, he vetoed all of these measures and the Democrats, while a majority, numerical majority in both houses, did not have a veto-proof majority, and they were unable to overturn Hayes' vetoes. And one of the things that this did is it really united the Republican Party that had been divided over issues like civil service. And there was some discussion of getting Hayes to run for a second term, but he stuck to his promise and, and refused to, to be considered for a second term. So they would eventually, and I do mean eventually, find another Ohioan to do it instead, as I segue into uh, James Garfield. Uh, any final, any truly final notes on Rutherford B. Hayes? Viva Presidente Hayes! Yes! In <laughs> DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, 
Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.